Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So back in 1966, Bob Dylan made one of the greatest albums of all time, one of my favorite albums of all time, Blonde on Blonde. And there's a new book out called That Thin, Wild, Mercury Sound, Dylan Nashville and the Making of Blonde on Blonde by Daryl Sanders. And it digs really deep, really deep into the making of basically every track on Blonde on Blonde and the kind of key story of it, which is that Bob Dylan went to Nashville. He became the first sort of rock star to go to Nashville and make an album with the Nashville Cats, the Nashville Session Musicians. It's also, by the way, the first double album in the history of rock and roll, which is crazy because now every album's at least a double album. We're going to be joined right now by Daryl Sanders, who wrote that book, and uh, later we'll be joined by one of the actual Nashville Session musicians who played on the album. Daryl, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for being here. Congratulations on the book. I enjoyed it very much. I appreciate that. Now, what drew you to this subject? I think you're based in Nashville, so I I guess that's part of it as far as uh, focusing on the Nashville part of it. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for going on 40 years, I've covered the rock and soul side of Nashville, which is pretty substantial. Most people don't realize that. I mean, going all the way back, you know, I mean, a lot of the early rockers cut here. Nashville gets really, it's never in the discussion about the birth of recorded rock and roll, but it deserves to be. So there's always been rock and soul and other kinds of music recorded here. But as you pointed out, Dylan was the first really big star. Um, A lot of people came here like Gene Vincent, cut B. Bapalula here, but that made him a star. He wasn't already a star. So I think that's a good point. When Dylan came, it, it sent a signal that uh, you can make good rock records here. He was also obviously the first sort of hippie to uh, arrive in Nashville and expect them to bend to his ways a little bit. Uh, yeah, you know, I think the main difference was just the budget he had compared to right. uh, what your typical country budget would be. So there was a lot of pressure to come out of any three-hour session with a minimum of three master takes and hopefully four, five, or six, you know? Exactly. And he slowed down that pace to a degree those guys couldn't believe. But the first step was his producer, Bob Johnston, right, who had the idea that this might work out for him. Yeah, Bob had been working in Nashville and producing his song demos here. And he was placing a lot of songs in Elvis movies. And he was working with a number of the young rock musicians in town, a group of musicians that was uh, led by Charlie McCoy, mostly famous for being a harmonica ace, but a a multi-instrumentalist has played all kinds of of instruments on all kinds of recordings. Charlie had a band called Charlie McCoy and the Escorts, and four of the guys that were in the Escorts made appearances on Blonde on Blonde, most notably the drummer, Kenneth Buttry, who to me, outside of Dylan, is the real star of the album, and guitarist Wayne Moss, who's going to join us later. But also Mac Gaydon and uh, Wayne Butler were in that band. Butler being the guy who played trombone on Rainy Day Women. And before Bob actually went to Nashville and started recording with those guys, he did attempt to record with the Hawks. And the Hawks, for those who don't know, were uh, was the band that would become the band. And it obviously had a legendary, fantastic tour with them. But the studio thing didn't quite work out, although you know some songs came from that. But what was your sense? Why wasn't it working? You traced that process pretty closely in the book. You know, I mean, Brian, to me, the singular thing that made it not work was Levon Helm left Dylan's touring band. Right. And I think... 
you know, they had done one session where it was Dylan and the Hawks, and Levon was on that. And if you've listened to those takes, the very last couple of takes they do, they're really just riffing on an instrumental idea Dylan has. But to me, if you hear that, you can kind of hear something coming together. And it's my thought that Dylan was looking forward to getting back in the studio with the Hawks as soon as he could. But then Levon left two days before the next session was scheduled, and the session drummer, Bobby Gregg, who had uh, recorded with Dylan on Bringing It All Back Home and on Highway 61 Revisited, got the call to fill in. And I think we had a bit of a clash of worlds there because the Hawks weren't really very experienced in the studio, but they were a band, so they, they knew how to work together. Of course, Bobby Gregg was strictly a session musician, and he came in, you know, without any rehearsal or anything, and it really didn't work out that first day because he didn't really have a rapport with them and really could never get on the same page with Dylan as far as the tempo. That's the day they first attempted Visions of Johanna. Right. I mean, to me, the thing we'll never know, but I, I think there's a very good chance he would have never gone to Nashville if Levon hadn't quit, Brian. Right, and obviously in 65 they did uh, Can You Please Crawl Out My Window, and that had Levon, and that was, despite not being... No, that didn't have oh, Levon. Oh, it did not have Levon. Okay, I never no, can keep see? this straight. Okay. Okay, so he attempted that multiple times, and he did attempt it with Levon, but... You know, there was something, he wasn't satisfied with something that was going on in the studio, something technical, and so he abandoned it and moved on to something else. And But when they actually recorded the version of uh, Can You Please Crawl Out Your Window that was released, Bobby Gregg was the drummer. That was recorded in, I think, December of 65. Actually, you know, it was recorded the same day they attempted Visions of Johanna. November 30th, 1965, yeah, looks like. Yeah, and, and I think what the deal was, the reason that Bobby Greg could lock into that groove more easily than he could on Visions of Johanna, which was, of course, Dylan was attempting something totally cutting edge with that. But with Can You Please Crawl Out Your Window, that was more in the uh, vein of like a Rolling Stone and Positively 4th Street. To me, those are kind of a trilogy of songs, those three. And um, sonically, as well as lyrically connected. And I just think Bobby felt more comfortable on that. Let's hear that song for a second if we can. Okay, cool. You're absolutely right. It's in that vein. It's it's a great sort of uh, it's one of Dylan's sort of great garage rock moments. There's a, there's a great cover of it in recent years by the Hold Steady. And I, I want to take a step back. So he had done this incredible tour, as I mentioned, with the group that would become the band. Although Levon dropped out partly because I don't think he was. He said he never really wanted to be anyone's drummer, but I also think he wasn't into being booed every night. I think was, Both was of those things. I think <laughs> were big part of the thing. You know? But you know that band, the way they were playing was this explosive, almost uncategorizable hard rock thing that was very much of the future and very intense and very loud and kind of insane. Let's hear Like a Rolling Stone from that era, if we can. So I'm throwing back to that to point out Daryl, that the songs that would make up Blonde on Blonde, he, he was looking for something more subtle, ultimately, wasn't he? 
On many of them, yeah, he was. Uh, I mean, leopard skin pillbox hat, and they almost got that in New York, I think. And probably the main problem with the New York uh, cuts on on that couple of takes he did uh, was simply that he didn't have the lyrics finalized yet. Robbie was on that, of course, and then Robbie was, of course, on the, the track when he got the master take recorded in Nashville. And we um, should we should point out that part of the process, right, was that if he changed the lyric, <laughs> you start from scratch. He wasn't overdubbing vocals. These were live takes of the song, vocals included, which made it a, an intense process. Yeah, it was four-track recording, and Dylan's vocals were paired in every instance with an instrument, you know, sometimes <laughs> more than one instrument. So, yeah, there was no isolating the vocal and overdubbing. You, you had to go back to the beginning and redo the entire take. And I think, as you saw in the book, uh, I noted multiple times, you know, he realized he didn't have the lyrics, and so he didn't want to waste the time, and he moved on to something else. That happened more than once during the 170-something takes that he recorded for Blonde on Blonde. <laughs> Which isn't actually that many, if you think about it. But so then, Not by today's standards, with Pro Tools and what have you. But with real tape, that's a lot, you know? And so how did he ultimately end up in Nashville? One of the interesting things to me, just in terms of what led Dylan to Nashville... I think it was probably three things. He became friends with Johnny Cash, and Johnny Cash, I think, was promoting the idea to him. Right. Uh, when Johnston took over as producer, uh, he was promoting the idea to Dylan. And I think being an artist, a hit songwriter, a musician himself, I think uh, Johnston had a clue as to what the sound was that Dylan was shooting for. And he, I think he did have a very clear idea that the guys in Nashville could help Dylan capture that. But I think another important thing, if you'll recall, when Charlie went by the studio that day during the recording, at the very end, the last date for Highway 61 Revisited, when Dylan uh, tracked the acoustic version of Desolation Row, you know, he invited Charlie to sit in, and Charlie ended up playing the signature flamenco-inspired guitar part on that. Right, and I love that he's primarily he's primarily a harmonica player, but if Bob Dylan says, hey, play guitar on Desolation Row, he's like, sure, and he can bust out the flamenco licks. Oh, yeah, it no, says, he can play it all. That's, <laughs> that's I mean, very natural. Know, yeah, he's amazing. But the interesting thing to me that I think has gone overlooked and may be the most compelling thing of all that made Dylan think, yeah, maybe this will work in Nashville, I should go give it a try, was that he had one of Charlie McCoy and the Escorts singles. Mm. And two things about that single. The A-side was called Harpoon Man, and that was an original primarily written by Matt Gaden, uh, who was the guitar player in the band by then. And on the flip side was a cover of the Willie Dixon song that was a hit for Muddy Waters, I'm Ready. And particularly on that track, Brian, Charlie had guitar harmonica and organ and dylan could hear this is a guy that's doing something similar to what i want to do and b he has a better band than me you know yeah and so because this is before he had a band this is before he hooked up with the hawks i think having that charlie mccoy and the escort single gave him proof that hey you know this kind of music is being made in nashville and i think we can actually hear i'm ready and that's the b-side of the harpoon man single right mm -hmm. uh, all right let's hear it Yeah, 
so, I mean, he ended up having from that recording, because Matt Gaden was on those recordings, but Wayne Moss, a lot of these things were being cut at Wayne Moss's Cinderella studio. And uh, even though he had left the band by then because he was just too busy with his studio and with his own session work, Wayne would often play on the Charlie McCoy and the Escorts records, so it would have Mac and Wayne on there. And I just think Bob heard the combination of uh, harmonica organ and then Kenny Buttry on drums. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, if you cue up those three albums where he went electric, Brian, and listen to them back to back to back, when it gets to the blonde on blonde sides, you go, whoa, it just went up a notch or several notches on the drums. And to me, Buttry's playing was so dynamic and so buoyant and so lively on the album that he just uplifted everything else, you know? Right. And so he went to a Studio A of the Columbia Recording Studios in Nashville. That's correct. And what were these guys' kind of first reaction to him? Because the first thing he did was not show up, I believe. Well, he was late coming there. Uh, his plane was delayed. He made his two trips to Nashville for Blonde on Blonde during breaks in his tour itinerary. And uh, he had a break of uh, about a week in February, beginning on Valentine's Day. And then he had another break at the end of the first week in March. And so I think that's when the waiting started. And the first day, they attributed it to him being late, you know, his plane being delayed. Because, you know, they went through two three-hour union clocked sessions where they didn't hit a note and got paid master scale. And, you know, at that point, Brian, they were kind of giddy about it. They were like, this is all right. You know, right? They would have uh, certain... they would have recorded like usually like an entire album for someone in that time, and, and exactly, and, yeah. you know, or half an album anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, but then uh, you know, the thing about these guys and the whole thing about New York hipster versus Southern good old boys—that kind of notion was kind of fabricated and and convenient, but. Really, these guys, the main thing about them, the significant thing was it didn't matter what Dylan wanted to do. They were professional studio musicians who were working in a studio culture that emphasized excellence and emphasized doing something, playing something appropriate for the song. The song ruled in this environment. So Dylan shows up with these far-out songs, and they're ready to do something far-out for him. And there was never any questioning it, although they didn't understand the lyrics, you know, necessarily. (laughs) But uh, they were just there to do a job, and if he wanted to keep them up all night and start at 4 a.m., they were going to give it their best shot. But he probably didn't get their best shot at 4 a.m., but it still was what's amazing to me as you know from reading the book, so much of this is they're creating the arrangements on the spot because he just finished writing the song right before he played it for them. And the fact that this sounds so musically sophisticated, I think is a real testament to the talent of all the musicians involved. You know, the Nashville Cats plus Al Cooper and and Robbie. And of course, Al played a huge role. I mean, song after song, Al's got the melodic hook, just like he did on Like a Rolling Stone. Yes, Al, who first played Hammond organ during the sessions for uh, for like a wrong song. And you make a great point, this whole idea that they were the good old boys and he was the New York hipster. These were Nashville hipsters, and these were these were young guys. I think that's one of the biggest things I learned from your book. I, I always pictured them as sort of like tobacco-chewing guys in their 50s for some reason, because that's what you think of when you hear Nashville session guys, but they were actually, they were young dudes. But uh, oh, Yeah, I mean, but, Kenny Buttry was only 20. Charlie was the same age as Dylan, 24. Uh, Al had just 
turned 22, and the rest of the cats were between 24 and 28. Wayne Moss and Pig Robbins were both 28, so they were the two oldest guys. So you're listening to Rolling Stone music now. I have Daryl Sanders with me. He wrote a new book called That Thin Wild Mercury Sound, Dylan Nashville in the Making of Blonde on Blonde, one of the greatest albums of all time. And when we come back, we're going to have Wayne Moss, who was one of the multiple guitar players on Blonde on Blonde and is uh, one of the greatest uh, Nashville session players joining us. We'll be right back. We actually have with us, in addition to Daryl, we have Wayne Moss, a legendary Nashville session guy. Hi, Wayne. Good to be here, Brian. Thank you. How you doing? Doing great. So, you know, first of all, someone said that one of the challenges of Blonde and Blonde as uh, as a guitarist particularly was trying to get a lick in because there were a lot of guys there. On I Want You, that's your lick up front and center, that rapid-fire thing. Yes, yeah, so that's me, and uh, there wasn't a lot of guitar players there. There was guitar players added to the original tracks. The original tracks were cut by Charlie McCoy and the Escorts, and um, Country Music Hall of Fame likes to call it Nashville Cats. There was a couple of Nashville Cats there, Pig Robbins and... Um, Henry Strzelecki. Other than that, it was Charlie McCoy and the Escorts. Right, it was one band. We were talking about that. You guys, yes, exactly. I guess it was Robbie, maybe, who's, when Robbie Robertson came in and, and uh, was joining the thing, he was saying that. But let's hear that I Want You, probably one of the most uh, memorable licks on any Bob Dylan record. Let's hear that. So that that little bit you're doing there, how did that come about? Well, it, we played whatever we uh, felt like fit the song, which is what we do here in Nashville. <laughs> and every time Charlie McCoy would ask Dylan, what do you want me to play on this, or what do you think, he'd say, I don't know, what do you think? So between Bob Johnson and uh, Charlie McCoy and the Escorts, we pretty much produced the album. Yeah, Bob kind of, Bob Dylan, he had the skeletons of songs sometimes that he had, as Daryl was saying, that he had he just finished writing two minutes before. Right. Uh, and he kind of strum his way through it, and you guys would, in the course of just hearing him strum the chord progression, would somehow <laughs> would create a fantastic arrangement around it. I guess that's just how you did. Well, it's it's not really magic. It's <laughs> what we do, uh, four sessions a day, uh, four songs a session, five days a week. And so when Dylan <laughs> came in, he worked at a much slower pace, and uh, so it was like a, a, a breeze to cut with him. A lot of sitting around, though, a lot of ping-pong playing, according to Daryl's book. That's correct. There was, and um, so we would get all coffeeed up, and that I lady the Lowlands, I think, it was set for a 2 o'clock. He showed up at 6, and we made one or two cuts on it by 8.30 the next morning. So um, that's much slower pace than we're used to in Nashville. I think one of the things also about Charlie and Wayne and Kenny and the other cats from uh, Charlie McCoy and the Escorts, I think, uh, you know, not every track, but a number of the tracks, you know, were right in, in the groove of what they enjoyed doing, what they were playing in the band, you know, blues and R&B and rock and roll, you know. I mean, right. these guys, I think a lot of the arrangements were just almost obvious to them, right, Wayne? I mean, it just right, that's, that's intuitively yeah. what you knew to play. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it was right in our groove, and we knew what to do. And, of course, Kenneth Buttry, Bill Akins, uh, Wayne Butler, Matt Gaden, all of us ended up on the record uh, at some point in time. But uh, there was a lot of overdubs done after the initial tracks were done by Joe South and different people. Yeah. I mean, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, as you said, that was, uh, you know, I, th- I think you were doing it at 4 a.m. Can you hear a little bit of the sleepiness on the playing of that? It got pretty sleepy toward, toward the end, yeah. I remember um, 
reading a book once that said Dylan's lyrics explained, and I, I looked down to Sad Adelaide Low Ends because I didn't really understand it. And it says, No words can describe the beauty within this song. So they didn't understand it either. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I do think that uh, where some of the frustrations set in for the cats, and correct me if I'm wrong, Wayne, but just these guys were geared toward doing the very best they could, and, and no matter how good it turned out, 4 a.m., they weren't able to do their best. Yeah, that's true. And Wayne, sometimes you probably had a 10 a.m. session the next day, and there might not have been any break in between, I guess. Yeah, that's true. And so we didn't get a whole lot of sleep between sessions. Some didn't have time to eat supper and a lot of things. You know, it's been talked about many times, but uh, Rainy Day Women, he asked, uh, what do you guys do? When what he meant is, how, how do you get, like, what would you get high on? And, and I guess some alcohol was procured for the session. Yeah, that, that's true. We ended up with a bunch of leprechauns from uh, Ireland, which was the strongest drink they had. And uh, the guy playing bass that day was uh, Hendrix Jalecki. He kind of overdid it, and I ended up playing bass on that song. And the idea was to sort of have a Salvation Army band kind of thing. Right. And Kenneth Buttrey was playing drums on there, and he did a fabulous job. And Charlie played tuba and trumpet and a bunch of things on there. Yes, and Wayne Butler played the trombone, you know, <laughs> and so uh, it's pretty much a Charlie's band. All right, let's hear that for just a second. Okay. And, and someone made Dylan laugh in there. And, Daryl, you pointed out that, that it might have been inspired by the Ronnie Millsap song, uh, Let's Go Get Stunned. Is that what you think? Well, uh, I'm basing that on the fact that uh, Phil Spector had told Dylan's official biographer, Robert Shelton, that he and Bob Dylan had heard uh, Ray Charles's version of Let's Go Get Stoned, like in December of 65 in the, at this coffee house, Fred Hobbs in Los Angeles. And that makes sense. He said that he and Dylan were, you know, amazed that someone could get away with such a lyric. Let's go get stoned, you know. <laughs> and and so Spectre thought that Dylan was inspired to write Rainy Day Women after hearing that on the jukebox at that coffee house that day. But the only problem with that is that Ray Charles's version of Let's Go Get Stoned didn't come out till almost a month after Rainy Day Women. But what was out in December of that year was a single by Ronnie Millsap, who then, Brian, was uh, you know trying to be an R&B singer. He had not moved to Nashville yet and debuted his kind of country soul hit-making formula yet. But... Uh, he uh, had, a, had, a, had a record out that was top 40 on the R&B charts, and the B-side of that song was Let's Go Get Stoned. And that's where Ray Charles heard it. And Ronnie knew that uh, Ray had been inspired to record that song by hearing Ronnie's version, but he didn't know that Dylan was possibly inspired to write Rainy Day Women after hearing his version. But that seems likely because there's no reason really to doubt Phil Spector remembering hearing that, you know? Yeah, I thought your detective work seemed pretty solid there. Well, let's hear that, that Ronnie Millsup track if we can. Let's go get 
It does sound like someone laid out a demo for Ray Charles to record, actually. The exactly. <laughs> and of course, I'm not suggesting that Rainy Day Women was in any way musically inspired, right. just lyrically inspired, you know. Absolutely. And speaking of inspirations, you make a great point about uh, Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat, which is that it very closely follows the structure of Automobile Blues by Lightning and Hopkins. Yeah, and you know, I think to our modern sensibilities, that's a little questionable, but you know, in that day and time, in the folk world, in the blues world, that's what you did. It wasn't just okay to do it. It's what you did. Absolutely. And so uh, Dylan was just building on an, a long blues tradition. And there was, you know, the same thing with obviously Five Believers, you know. He was borrowing heavily from Good Morning Little Schoolgirl. But let's hear the uh, Lightning Hopkins uh, automobile blues. You riding in a brand new automobile. Yes, I saw you riding round. You riding round in a brand new automobile. And then let's hear uh, Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat just for comparison. So, whole fourth time around and uh, Beatles Norwegian Wood thing is confusing, especially when when Dylan confusingly said that he did it first, and then the Beatles uh, that they, yeah. that they uh, got it from him or, yeah. or or took it from him. You know, yeah, I think that's more of a. As I said in the book, he he made that comment to Al Cooper when Al pointed out the fourth time around was similar to Norwegian Wood. And Dylan made the comment, well, you know, he said they took it from him and he felt like he had to put it out. I think he was really referring to more an appropriation of his style rather than any earlier song. And so, uh, you know, of course, you've got to hide your love away. And uh, a couple of other songs from that era really had a Dylan-esque feel to them with Lennon playing acoustic guitar and that sort of thing. And of course, Norwegian Wood seems like that was kind of the final straw for Bob, you know? I think there's a strong case to be made then when he says, I never asked for your crutch, don't ask for mine, that he he really was mildly nudging the Beatles to stop stealing his stuff, which is pretty funny. Let's hear those two songs next to each other and then maybe let's go back to Wayne for a second. So this is fourth time around, and by Bob Dylan, and now let's hear uh, Norwegian Wood by the Beatles. This was this was like rap beef in, in 1966, is what this was. Um, but but Wayne, I, I wanted to go back to you. What else stands out in your your memory from these sessions? Uh, I can't say enough about the fact that Dylan chose to um, give everybody album credits, which formerly was never done in Nashville up to that point. And uh, so ever since then, if you want to know who played on something, he sort of shamed Nashville into giving credits. But prior to um, Blonde on Blonde, uh, it didn't matter if you played guitar on Pretty Woman or what, they wouldn't tell you who did it, you know. Which, by the way, Wayne did play guitar on Pretty Woman. 
Well, me and a couple other folks, yes. That's uh, that's not too shabby, man. <laughs> that's, that's pretty solid. But yeah, I mean, right. So the, and, and then, just one other quick note, yeah, Brian, yeah. just uh, before we move too far away from it. Wayne was playing that ex- exquisite acoustic guitar picking part on Fourth Time Around. Something like that. That was just you here Dylan strumming his way through the chords and, and you start in that? Or did he possibly even reference Norwegian Wood to try to get it so similar? Or how did that work out? I don't recall um, uh, who, who brought it up. We just sort of played whatever felt like the song needed. And, uh, you know, stealing licks from Chet Atkins or whoever. Just and Charlie McCoy is playing the counter melody also on acoustic guitar on that as well. He and Wayne... Of course, they're musical brothers, and they're, they're so intuitive with each other. It was, But the interesting thing about that, that's another thing where Dylan was still tweaking the lyrics and trying to find the right tempo you know, for him to comfortably sing the song. They had the arrangement together like from the first or second take. It was basically there. Yeah. Wayne, what did you make of Dylan sort of as a person and an artist? Like, did he come across as a genius or just a mystery or as a weirdo or what? Well, <laughs> a, a little of both. When Initially, when Charlie McCoy called and said, cutting Bob Dylan, I said, who's Bob Dylan? And he said, I don't know. He wrote Blowing in the Wind, just show up. Now, since then, I've come to become a big fan. We recorded uh, Just Like a Woman on the Eric O. 615 albums. And, uh, you know, he's... He's done great things, and uh, Pulitzer Prize isn't too, too shabby either. Nobo, yeah, but at the time, what'd you make of him? At the time, I wasn't impressed by him that much because I didn't know who he was. Right, and he and also therefore, was... Therefore, we yeah. didn't freeze up on the session or anything <laughs> and because we weren't necessarily in awe of him, but we became big fans later on. Now, Daryl, you listened to uh, pretty much all the sessions for the album. Did some moments with Wayne, other moments with Wayne stand out since we happened to have him with us? When we were listening to Leopard Skin, Pillbox Hat, one thing I liked about that is that, uh, you know, Robbie takes the lead on the master uh, take of that on the final night of recording in Nashville. But Wayne and Joe South are both uh, playing some really very cool rhythm stuff that lays the foundation for what Robbie plays. And particularly Wayne has just this sick boogie groove going on, you know. I think it's like what uh, Wayne said and I mentioned earlier. I think these guys were looking always to play something the best thing they could but that fit the song, you know. And But there are, you know, Wayne had some, some moments on he and Robbie had a moment, I think it was on uh, Absolutely Sweet Marie, maybe, where uh, I described it as a dual offenders because Wayne played a jazz master and Robbie played a telly. Jump in here, Wayne. Well, you know, it's been a while, so I don't remember <laughs> everything, but I do remember some things that maybe uh, don't show up other places. For instance, Chris Christopherson was emptying ashtrays during the session. I don't know if people are aware of that. Right, he was like the engineer's assistant uh, at that point. Right. And I don't know, there's uh, uh, something else that might be worth mentioning is that in uh, Bob Dylan's hometown in Minnesota, uh, it says, home of the world's first strip mine. It looks like they would give him a little more credit than that. But <laughs> You know, I think uh, one thing that I, I want everyone listening to know about Wayne, and I don't mean to embarrass him, but one of Nashville's many nicknames is Guitar Town. And uh, as a friend of mine uh, joked to me once, every guitar player in Nashville was the best guitar player in their hometown. Right. But, Brian, in the history of this town, there have been very few people that can touch Wayne Moss, man. The guy's precision chops are just almost unmatched in the history of the city. And well, and uh, everyone should know that. This guy that we've got on on the show with us today is 
truly one of the guitar masters, you know. Well, I, I certainly I know that anyone in a cover band who's tried to play "I Want You" is weeping, trying to <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to, to to nail that part. I I, I myself have, have attempted it and, and immediately gave up. But you know, I, I would ask Daryl. You know, you, you did a great job of finding people who were deeply affected by this album. But if you had to sum up the impact of "Blonde on Blonde," and we only have a couple minutes left, what would you say, rather quickly? Well, I, I think Bob Johnson may have been on to something where he pointed out that really nothing was the same after Blonde on Blonde. It changed everything. You know, right. it certainly changed Nashville. But more than that, I think in so many ways, it gave um, permission to artists who followed Dylan to push the boundaries. You know, I mean, like one point I made, I had to write a blog piece for my publisher about the album, my five favorite tracks. And I'm, you know, I made the point that, you know, it's hard to imagine there being Stairway to Heaven without Visions of Johanna. That's perfect. Well said. So that was today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We had Daryl Sanders, the author of that Thin Wild Mercury Sound, Dylan Nashville in the making of Blonde on Blonde, and Wayne Moss who played on Blonde on Blonde. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Leave us a nice review on iTunes tunes if you can and as always thanks for listening and we'll see you next week